Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the biblical theology expressed in the Lutheran Confessions. Today, we continue with the presentations that were given at Faith Free Lutheran Church's Reformation Conference. Today, Pastor Sam Wellamson discusses subjective and objective justification. Can you hear me okay? Is this different acoustics than what I'm used to? But uh, it's great to be with you today. I've uh, been honored uh, since Jason had first, Pastor Goodham, had first suggested this, and uh, he said, yeah, my council finally approved doing this conference, and I said, okay, what am I speaking on? So I inserted myself. Um, in doing that, um, <laughs> I, you can call me the Judge Judy of today, and half of this joke has already been stolen from me. I feel like the Judge Judy of today because I'm following Dr. Phil. Uh, but again, it's good to be with you, and uh, blessings to you as we study this. In the fall of 1533, Martin Luther said, the, wor- the world is like a drunken peasant. If you lift him into the saddle on one side, he will fall off the other side. One cannot help him, no matter how one tries. He wants to be the devil's. And the same thing can be said uh, with theologians. Give an excitable Christian a little bit of this or that doctrine and they're going to run with it, and they're going to fall off one side of the saddle or another. So first-year seminarians, if there are any of you here, uh, don't go be a pastor after the first year of seminary because you don't have everything. The, uh, the poet Alexander Pope wrote this, and I thought it was great. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Perian spring. Their shallow draughts intoxicate the brain And drinking largely sobers us again. You have to keep the rhyme working. So the purpose of this presentation is to show Scripture's teaching with regards to justification and what that means for us. And it piggybacks very well on Pastor Phil's presentation because we have a definition now of what this looks like. But as we look at this, as we look at justification... Scripture will talk about it, and it's helpful to make a distinction between objective, sub, objective justification and then subjective justification. And keeping this distinction, maintaining this distinction, helps us from falling off either side of the horse and ending up in the devil's manure pile. So, with that in mind, the, the way that I thought to do this is to look at this doctrine, this distinction in the different lenses of theology, the different practices of theology. So if you, if you go to seminary or even Bible school, uh, your classes, even if you maybe don't know it, they're going to be divided up into different categories. You're going to have um, systematic theology, where basically all that means is it's a fancy way of saying It takes those doctrines of Scripture and puts them in a systematic way that's understandable because of this, it means this, and it means this, and it means this. And so that's the first lens that we're going to look through with regards to objective and subjective justification. Another lens of theology is exegetical, which is basically taking the verses of Scripture and pulling them apart to see how those words and those sentences and those verses and those books work together to teach something. And so we're going to do that as well. And then finally, we're going to look at at this distinction in the realm of practical theology, 
because all theology, if you finish seminary and get into a parish, the thing you're going to find out is systematic theology, exegetical theology, they're good and you need them, but in the end, all theology ends up being practical. Every last bit of it. And so, you know, what it means that Jesus is God and man, even though we can't comprehend that or understand that, that has practical implications for the people that are under your care. And so, because I don't want you leaving here without having something practical with all of this, that's the last lens that we'll be looking through. And again, foolishly, um, <laughs> being part of this conference where we have the seminary's exegetical guy, the seminary's systematic guy, and then me, I, I'm taking off more than I can chew here. So, we're going to start with systematic theology, and again, Pastor Phil has given us a great definition with regards to justification. Justification is that decree by God that a person is righteous or just. And the most succinct statement that I think you should be familiar with, if you aren't, is how the Augsburg Confession defines this. And thank you, Pastor Phil, for keeping it in the formula and the apology But the Augsburg Confession, this is something, I I don't know who you are, many of you, but if you are in an AFLC congregation, when you became a member, you said that you would uphold the doctrines of what your church teaches, and part of those doctrines that the Lutheran Church, the AFLC, teaches is the Augsburg Confession. And so, uh, whether you knew it or not, when you became a member at that church, you said, I agree to this, so... Um, read those documents because they're good to keep in mind. But the apology, not the apology, the Augsburg Confession, it's Article 4. And the, the um, Augsburg Confession is really simple to read, so read it. It's, it's gold. But Article 4 on justification, the Augsburg Confession says this, Our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works. People are freely justified For Christ's sake, through faith, when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake by his death, Christ made satisfaction for our sins, God counts this faith as righteousness in his sight. And then they cite verses from Romans. That's justification. Again, you heard the last lecture and you you have a good working definition of it now. When we start to look then at justification, there's a distinction that's helpful. And Pastor Phil again alluded to this. And so this table that I've put in front of you, I'm going to use my table because I put it together. So uh, the term objective justification, it refers to the facts of what God has done in Christ and then to whom those works of Christ extend. So... The fact that Jesus was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, etc., etc., those facts that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he rose again from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, those are the facts of what Christ has done. And repeatedly, Scripture teaches that all those works that Christ has done, it teaches who they're for. And so these Scripture verses that are there for you, Romans one twenty nine. The next day, he, and that's John the Baptizer, I won't call him the Baptist, John the Baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And that says to whom this work of Christ extends, who it covers, who it's beneficial for. Uh, Next verse, Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. We'll look at that verse a little bit more later. 1 John 2.2. He, that's referring to Jesus, is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so there's no one, there's not one single person for whom Christ did not die. There is no sin that is not covered by his death. There is no transgression that isn't atoned for. There's nothing left for forgiveness to be purchased to be done. Because it's done. As Christ said on the cross, it is finished to telestai. It stands completed. His work there was done. And so there's other verses that I could have pointed to, but then the table would have been all off kilter and it would have looked terrible. But a few other verses. Romans 3.23, you probably know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it kind of bugs me, the Romans road, that it stops there because verse 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. The subject for both, all have sinned and are justified, is all. 2 Corinthians 5.19, which also we'll look at later, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It is for all. And this, again, it stands outside of you. It stands 2,000 years before you were here, give or take. Uh, some of you may be a little closer to 1,900, but that's, well, that's another point. It stands outside of you. It is done. It is complete. It is finished. Christ's work of redeeming your sins, of dying and paying the price for your sins, it is done. It is accomplished. And it doesn't matter then if you don't believe it, It doesn't matter if you don't care about it. It doesn't matter if you've never even heard about it. It still stands true for every person that you will ever run into. Christ's death has paid for their sins. The world has been reconciled to Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All that being said... There's an error that we can fall into. There's one point I need to make here, too. This, this objective justification, it maintains for us the grace alone, when we talk about the solas of the Reformation, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, all those, this objective justification maintains that it is by grace alone. Now, simply because Christ has paid for all of the sins, does that mean that every person who's ever lived will be with you forever with God in the new creation? No. It doesn't mean that. Sadly, it doesn't mean that. 
God have mercy, because it doesn't mean that. If you've been on Facebook lately and are in various Christian groups, um, the presiding bishop, bishopess of the ELCA, Elizabeth Eaton, was asked in the last few weeks uh, if, she, if there was a hell. And here's what she said. There may be, but it's empty. That's heresy. That's universalism. And that's something that we cannot fall into. Because then, let's just go around doing whatever I feel in the moment. When the guy cuts me off coming up Lindale, why don't I just run him off the road and into the pole? Because I'm going to go to heaven anyway. So I might as well have a good time here too. Right? I do have a good time here, but not because of that. So... We are not universalists. And so to combat that, to to keep us from that error, to keep us from that heresy, we're going to talk about the term subjective justification. And so again, follow along. Subjective justification is when the benefits of objective justification are delivered to the individual sinner. And it is received then through personal faith, which is given by God as a gift. It's not something you muster up or something that you're convinced of. It's a God-given, spirit-given, word-given gift, this faith, when it's given as a gift through the means that God has provided, through the word and through the sacraments. And just as objective justification maintains the grace alone with the Reformation solas, subjective justification maintains Faith alone. Because just because Jesus died for your sins doesn't mean that you get the benefits of it. Grace alone, faith alone, and both of these would follow under Christ alone and word alone. Scripture verses regarding this. Habakkuk 2.4, which Paul quotes all over the place. The righteous shall live by his faith. John 3.16, which has been mentioned. For God... Uh, so loved the world, and I thank you, Pastor Phil, for in seminary and Bible school, whichever it was, uh, for correcting me on this. It's not God so much loved the world. It's in this way God loved the world. In this way God loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Acts 2.38, Peter said to those that he was preaching to on the day day of Pentecost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to talk a little bit about objective justification, for this promise is for you, and for your children, and for many who are fall off, everyone to whom the Lord calls to himself. And finally, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so then, the results, and I know I'm kind of jumping all over the table here, but hopefully it's clear. The results of these two things. Objective justification, the result is that the gospel can be proclaimed to anyone you meet, to all ethnicities, to all nations, as Jesus says in Matthew 28. And the results then of Subjective justification is that there are believers. 
There are believers from those to whom the gospel is proclaimed. The problem, though, if we fall off the horse on the side of subjective justification, on objective it was universalism, the, the manure pile that we end up in, if we stress or uh, keep subjective justification only and don't acknowledge the objective justification, is, again, it's a damnable heresy of Calvinism, limited atonement. John, no, not John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, he wrote this, and it's vile. But listen to how he talks about it, too. Uh, there's a lot of me, what I think, what I believe. John Calvin, or John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon says this, To think that my Savior died for men who were or are in hell seems a supposition too horrible for me to maintain. To imagine for a moment that Jesus was the substitute for all the sons of man, and that God, having first punished the substitute afterwards, punished the sinners themselves, seems to conflict with all my ideas of divine justice. That Christ could offer an atonement and satisfaction for the sins of all men, and that afterwards some of those very men should be punished for the sins for which Christ already atoned, appears to me to be the most monstrous iniquity that could have been imputed to Saturn, to Janus, to the goddess of the thugs, etc., etc. He's wrong. He's dead wrong. That doesn't mean that he isn't saved, but that type of teaching, if you're hearing it in the pews, all that type of teaching can ever do is produce doubt in you. Doubt being the opposite of faith. There's another error that isn't quite as gross or quite as uh, apparent, maybe, as limited atonement. You're familiar with Calvinism, the tulip, I hope. Uh, Total depravity, um, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Limited atonement, that Jesus only died for some. There's some even friends of mine, and people that I'm very well acquainted with, they don't go all the way into the manure pile of limited atonement, but they like to sniff at it a little bit. I don't know. Some, my, my son, it's on Facebook, I won't say it. <laughs> Talk to me later, I'll give you a story. Um, there's this idea that some have that when we are talking about the gospel, when we're preaching the gospel, that we need to be careful because we don't want to give sinners a false assurance that they're saved. Okay? And again, I don't want to go all the way into universalism, but when we do that, we're starting to rob ourselves of the gospel. There's a practice that went on for a long time, which hopefully, I think anyway, is dying out a little bit, where in a worship service, after sins are confessed, that we just move on to the next thing. And that doesn't even fit in with what we as Lutherans hold about confession. Luther, in the small catechism, he says, confession consists of two parts. The first, that we confess our sins. The second, that we receive absolution. And so there had been this fear that We don't want to give sinners a false assurance that they're saved, so we're not going to declare the forgiveness of Christ. We're not going to say, as far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed your transgressions from you, because if someone heard that, 
maybe they just continue on in their sin. That's, again, it's not in the manure pile, but you're sniffing at it. You might be poking it with a stick. And so we don't want to do either of those things. We need to maintain both of these so that we aren't the drunk falling off either side of the horse. We want to stay on the horse. Uh, One more quote that I gave you in the handout here. This is from... Nope, this is not from that. I'm ahead of myself. In a booklet that Luther wrote called The Keys, it was in 1530 he wrote this, he addresses the very concern about the absolution because it was falling out of practice even in his day for there to be an absolution in the service. But Luther wrote this. He said, Many do not believe the gospel, but this does not mean that the gospel is not true or effective. A king gives you a castle. If you do not accept it, It's not the king's fault, nor is he guilty of a lie. You have deceived yourself, and the fault is yours. The king certainly gave it. And so again, this goes back to the idea that it doesn't matter if people have heard it, if they believe it, if they're ignorant of it. The fact is true. Jesus has paid for their sin. And so, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. When we get to practical theology, this has huge ramifications for you as you talk to other people. So we need to keep this distinction, we need to keep this maintained. Uh, The quote that I mentioned, it's before you, it's from the Formula of Concord. Um, And this is talking about um, Jesus and and our righteousness before God. The, The righteousness of faith before God is the article that this is part of. And they make a distinction between, or people were making a distinction, if Christ's work as a man or if Christ's work as God is what brought about this justification. And uh, the reformers just say hogwash. It's Jesus. You can't split them up into two. So that's where some of this language is coming from anyway. We believe, teach, and confess that the entire obedience of Christ's entire person, which he has offered to the Father for us, even to his most humiliating death on the cross, is credited to us for righteousness, as mentioned above, the obedience not only of one nature but of the entire person is a complete satisfaction and atonement for the entire human race. By this obedience, God's eternal, unchangeable righteousness revealed in the law has been satisfied, so our righteousness benefits us before God and is revealed in the gospel. Faith relies upon this before God, which God credits to faith, as it is written in Romans 5, John 1, Habakkuk 2, etc. So, close that, slide down here. Exegetical overview of objective and subjective justification. I hope you noticed in that table, in the objective justification column, I underlined portions of those verses Uh, with a regular underline, and then in the subjective justification column, it's a squiggly underline. That's an attempt to hopefully help you see at least a little bit when you are reading a verse of Scripture uh, where you see this distinction being made. And so in these verses, I've done that. In uh, other parts, I've done that. I don't have it all perfectly like I've given it to you. It's just perfect, isn't it, that handout? Oh, just wonderful. Um, But hopefully... Hopefully it will help. And, and as, you, as you learn about this distinction and as you know about it, you'll start to see this distinction popping up all over the place. 
Christ's death, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and it's for you, objectively. Christ has died for the sins of the world. Subjectively, it's for you, because you are part of that world. And then faith grabs onto that objective fact and believes it. That's subjective justification. So, the verses. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Check the time. Okay. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made righteous, so by the one man's obedience the many... uh, Did I say that right? For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. When you look at the context of these verses, he's pitting up Adam and Jesus against, not against each other, but he's, he's making an example from the two. Adam ate the fruit of the tree and all became sinners because of that. If you want to know that you're a sinner, check your pulse. If you've got a pulse, you're a sinner. Because that pulse eventually can stop. And so because of sin, that pulse stops. We die because of sin. And so that death has spread to all of us. But so also, that one act of righteousness, and it's not as though Paul is pointing to one specific thing. He's pointing to the entirety of Christ's work, his life Death, resurrection, ascension, all of it. That's what makes all righteous. But then he gets a little funny. Uh, in, in uh, I forgot to put the verse numbers in here. I think it's verse twenty or 19 where it switches. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. It's not as though he's suddenly saying that not everyone is a sinner. He's, he's using many and he does it elsewhere too. Um, as another way to say all here. And I I can show you verses that will help bolster this fact. I don't know why he'd change, but he did. It's God's word, and I can't change it, so there you go. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. When that obedience of Christ, when that satisfaction that Christ has accomplished, when that... Uh, atonement that Jesus has won and purchased, when that is believed, subjective justification happens. You are saved. Don't fall off either side of the horse. It's not just because Jesus died you're saved. Believe it. That's the repeated call of the scriptures. Believe it because it is for you. 2 Corinthians 5, and i got to move around here. This is what happens when you are up late working on things. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then, well, depending on what we're talking about, this might be my favorite verse of Scripture. 
For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, sinners, though we are, might become the righteousness of God. This reconciliation, you'll notice, it's not something that you do. It's not something that you work really hard at. Uh, When my kids fight and they're punching each other in the face, which that doesn't happen all that often. I'm a good parent most of the time. But when they've sinned against each other, we try to reconcile them. Say you're sorry. Ask to be forgiven. Say, yes, I forgive you. Don't ever, this is an aside, but you've paid good money to be here. Don't let your kids ever say, I'm sorry, and then the other kid to say, it's okay. Don't do that. Make them say, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And the response be, yes, I forgive you. Because it's, it's different. So, uh, this thing, this reconciliation between my kids, one kid might actually mean that they're sorry and be asking to be forgiven. And the other kid might actually mean, yes, they do forgive, but it's very possible that one of them meant it and one of them didn't, or it's very likely, as often it would be the case, that neither of them meant it, they're just doing that to please me. But that's another point. This reconciliation, it's not as though we do something and God does something and we meet in the middle. That's not how this works. It can't work that way. Then it's not justification anymore. Then it's self-improvement or self-justification. And dead people aren't really good at reconciling uh, with one another. Dead people can't reconcile themselves with God. God was in Christ. He was doing the work of reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And again, objectively, this is for all, for everyone, for everyone who has ever been born, everyone. It is for all. And yet, sadly, not all believe it. Not all receive that message of reconciliation. And there's a variety of reasons. Oh, I don't really need it. I've never heard of it. There's all sorts of reasons, and I'm not going to get into you know, explaining You know, how God can condemn someone who's never heard about Jesus. That's for another time. But this is the message that God has given us. This is the gospel. Objective justification is the gospel. Subjective justification is when it is received and believed through the God-given gift of faith. Next verse. And I'm not going to spend as much time on these next two. Colossians 2, 11 to 14. In him, in Christ, also you were, recon- you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's subjective. If you haven't been baptized, if you haven't received that circumcision made without hands, you, I mean, you can receive it by faith, etc., but he's, he's limiting it. It's not as though everyone gets all the benefits of it. Not everyone moves into the king's castle when he gives it to them. And yet, keep reading. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, 
This he set aside, nailing to the cross. Talking about that work of Christ. His atoning death and his resurrection. And that is not only for those who receive it by faith. It is, again, for all. 1 Peter 3, 18-21, excuse me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Again, outside of you, historical fact that you have to deal with. Jesus has done this, it is completed. And it's for all. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they did not formerly obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were were brought safely through water. Subjectively, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'd talk more about that, but I'm 35. Look at the parable, uh, Matthew 13. Um, the kingdom of heaven parables. Matthew 13 is full of kingdom parables. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a big old net. And what does a net catch? How many of you, Forrest Gump? My, one of my favorite scenes in Forrest Gump, when they pull that net and out pops a toilet seat and like two shrimp. Net catches everything that it swallows up. God isn't about going fishing for sinners like a fly fisher one at a time and plucking them out. He sends out the net and gobbles it all up. And then Jesus says at the end of the age, then those things are all separated. Practical theology. What are the practical implications of all of this? Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel being the objective justification. Jesus has died for all. I'm not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in that gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, subjective, as it is written, the righteous, subjectively, shall live by faith. The benefits of Christ are for all. It is received, and you get the benefits of it through faith. Finally, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, subjective justification, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, subjective. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone, objective, who believes in Christ will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, objective, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's where it gets to the bottom of the road for you. Uh, I'll read it. i got to read it. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Not everyone believes. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed... What he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, through the gospel. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For the voice has gone out to all the earth and the word and their words to the ends of the world. What does all this mean for you? 
as you go about your life, Christian, as you go about being declared righteous because of the work of Christ, you bump into people. Um, it doesn't matter if you're a uh, uh, pastor. It doesn't matter if you're a butcher. It doesn't matter what you do. God puts you in relationships with other people. People who haven't heard of what Christ has done, or even if they have heard, they haven't believed it. And so as you go about your life, as you see these conversations taking shape, how do you evangelize? You tell them. When they talk about, I'm going through this struggle, I'm going through that struggle, life is really hard because of this, because of that, you tell them. You give them the objective truth of objective justification. Jesus died for all of those sins. You're forgiven. And it's fun when you do this because (laughs) they won't maybe even use the words sins. They won't even think that they're really confessing. They're just groaning under the weight of their own sin. And then you get to be those feet of Christ proclaiming the gospel saying, yeah, Jesus died for that one too. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. And we better not be ashamed of it. We better not be afraid of what it might do. Because if we start to be afraid of giving someone false assurance, again, we're, we're falling off the wrong side of the horse. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And so, as a fellow Christian with you, let's let this voice of the gospel go out to all the ends of the earth. Thank you for joining us. Please look us up on the web at beinglutheran.com or invite a friend to join us on iTunes. Join us next week as we continue giving the presentations given at Faith Free Lutheran Church's Reformation Conference. Again, the topic was justification. God bless you and have a great week.